We need more engineering and STEM leaders. And this will be impossible to do without bringing in more women and underrepresented minorities as well. So we can address the gaps and help increase the skills necessary across the globe to solve some of our greatest challenges. Welcome to episode five of the Coursera podcast, where we have conversations with renowned experts and industry leaders to explore global trends impacting the future of education and work. I'm your host, Arunav Sinha, Vice President of Global Communications at Coursera. In today's episode, we will go behind the scenes of creating an Ivy League online degree, from building equity in admissions to crafting a program as engaging and valuable as traditional on-campus experience. Degree as a credential, particularly from top institutions, continue to be a major driver of long-term economic mobility. Offering them online creates unprecedented access for learners to gain from these prestigious programs. However, fully online degrees from Ivy Leagues are relatively uncommon, but Dartmouth is changing that. In September 2023, Dartmouth launched its very first fully online degree, a Master of Engineering in Computer Engineering on Coursera. I'm thrilled to have on the podcast today, Dr. Alexis Abramson. Dean of Dartmouth's Thayer School of Engineering, who created this program alongside the faculty. Dr. Alexis Abramson is a mechanical engineer, the 13th Dean of the Thayer School of Engineering at Dartmouth, and a co-founder of Edifice Analytics. Her fascinating background includes serving as chief scientist of the Emerging Technologies Division at the U.S. Department of Energy's Building Technologies Program, and technical advisor for Breakthrough Energy Ventures, a billion-dollar effort launched by Bill Gates to combat human-driven climate change. Welcome, Dr. Bramson. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we discuss the degree program, let's talk about your path to Dartmouth, because that's very interesting as well. How has your experience in creating partnerships that link academic research with public and private initiatives influenced your ability to drive change at Dartmouth. Sure. Again, I'm thrilled to be here and very excited to talk about this important topic that many of us are asking questions about these days. You're right. I, I've been at Dartmouth now for about four and a half years as Dean of Engineering. And throughout my academic career, I've not sort of followed your traditional academic path, if you will. Of course, I, I studied at a graduate level and then went to become a professor at Case Western Reserve University. But I spent some time in the tech-based economic development world looking at how do we get the research, the amazing discoveries that are being made at universities out into the marketplace or into having a positive impact on society. I've spent some time also at the Department of Energy, two years as the chief scientist in the Building Technologies Office. Again, looking at how does the federal government really influence moving, pushing, creating innovation in, in this particular case, the building energy efficiency space, and really get the biggest bang for one's buck in supporting research and development and deployment of energy-related technologies. And then, as you mentioned, I spent a year and then continued as a technical advisor, really working closely with the, the venture capital firm that you mentioned looking at how do you invest in companies with the goal of creating profit 
but really mitigate climate change and really have uh, an additional impact on the world by investing in these important companies that were up and coming. I think what I've learned from all of these different roles is the strength of the public and private partnership that oftentimes the values, the mission of a public institution or an institution of higher learning might be different from a private institution, which may be more profit-centric. But really, by combining those two, we can kind of get the best of both worlds because we're thinking about the investors who are putting forth money in um, many cases and expect a profit, and also at the same time thinking about the public good. And that's really been a big catalyst for me as I've worked at Dartmouth and thought about how to kind of leverage that special relationship, those partnerships, to really push innovation and really have the most human-centered positive impact on the world. Fantastic. In fact, some of that is emblematic in the degree that you just launched. This degree, the first online Ivy League master degree in computer engineering, is coming at a critical time. The semiconductor industry is projecting a talent shortage of 67,000 engineers by 2030. Was this a major factor that led to the launch of this program? And as an addendum, how will programs like this combat the growing worker shortage? Yeah, great question. I really think that our job as a higher education institution is always to be thinking about societal needs. That may seem a little bit strange sometimes when you think about diving into the calculus and the physics and all that you need to learn to be an engineer. But we know, especially what we do here at Dartmouth, we know we have to be able to significantly grow the engineering workforce to strengthen our nation's economic competitiveness and security. We have to be thinking about societal needs. And that aligns very well with the goals of the CHIPS Act, which is a $50 billion or so dollar initiative of the federal government to really increase the workforce so that we can bring more semiconductor research and development and manufacturing to this country. And this will be impossible to do without bringing in more women and underrepresented minorities as well. We need more engineering and STEM leaders. We need a degree that makes that engineering learning more accessible for people so we can address the gaps and help increase the skills necessary across the globe to solve some of our greatest challenges from climate change to healthcare to energy and specifically within semiconductors. And few educational institutions are really tackling this national challenge at the core of their teaching and learning mission as we now are. And even fewer are looking at the issues sort of systematically across the university and are thinking about it from addressing the societal need perspective like we are through this degree program. At Dartmouth, we offer a multidisciplinary liberal arts approach to engineering. So we're quite unique in that way. And that provides us sort of this neat position built on experience to tackle this challenge, taking a unified approach. So in fact, I want to go deeper into that. How did you go about translating a program that is so renowned for its experiential and project-based learning to 100% online? In other words, if I have to say, how will you ensure that the learning experience and educational rigor will live up to Dartmouth standards? Yeah, great question. We really thought long and hard about what a Dartmouth online engineering experience should be. I think 
For the last decade and beyond, we as society have dabbled in online education in various ways. We tried out the webcam at the back of the room with the professor writing on the blackboard. That was in the early stages. In fact, we used to do that with VCR tapes a couple of decades ago, and we've come quite a long way since then to this place where we now are, which says, how do we meet the educational needs of a student sitting at a computer, probably asynchronously, that needs to learn, that needs to build skills, that may have different educational needs than the person in a, in a house down the road might have. And so our courses are what we call highly curated. So they're highly curated online experiences. They're really designed so that students receive an education beyond that sort of more conventional recorded lectures. The courses are taught by the same Dartmouth faculty members who teach those same courses on campus. So you're getting a very similar experience. You're getting a high level of expertise, but you're getting it online. Also, students will have opportunities for real-time office hours with faculty and others that are there to support them. They will receive project kits in the mail to work on at home. This is something we did during COVID. We sent a lot of project kits home, of course, unexpectedly at that point. And now we're able to design those project kits in such a way to really be able to complement the online learning experience. We really want students to ask questions and ask for support from the professors and peers. So we're setting up the environment so they feel good about doing that. But many of our students also will have access to the same programs and resources that our in-person students do, such as career services. Our students will earn a Dartmouth degree. The online students will be invited to join us in Hanover, New Hampshire at our graduation ceremonies. So really, to get at the next part of your question around the rigor, I think we learned a lot during the pandemic. We learned that online engineering courses can be hands-on and project-based and rigorous all at the same time. And that really comes from some of the things I already talked about by making sure that the courses are being taught in a way that's designed for the online learner and being taught by a true expert who really knows the materials and knows what to expect from the students who are learning, be it at the other end of a computer or in the classroom itself. This program was designed to be human-centered in order to produce job-ready graduates. What are the other ways and how can you extrapolate a lot of learnings that you had or you're going to have with this program to make online learning even more effective in preparing students for job markets and career growth? Yeah, great question. And this goes back to some of the things I was already mentioning, that we take a unique approach at Dartmouth Engineering. We really support learners who are interested in understanding both the technology piece, but also the human and societal impact piece. So we really value the liberal arts learnings, the real world learnings that come along with the scientific and mathematical and engineering related concepts that we expect them to know. So while students in this program, of course, they will learn how to extract and evaluate information from large amounts of data through courses like signal processing and machine learning and computer vision and others. They'll learn to build hardware components of intelligent systems, 
They'll engage in hands-on and collaborative project-based learning with peers from all over the world too. So they're learning those technical concepts that are both software and hardware. And then from a human-centered standpoint, they will be asked in all their courses to really think deeply about the impact of the technologies that they are learning about or even creating. And of course, with the rise of AI and other complex computer engineering challenges, it's just so important that we prepare our graduates who are critical thinkers, who are asking tough questions, who are thinking about the potential unintended consequences of the concepts that they're learning about or their technologies that they're developing. And really, that is what we would argue is what industry needs. They need these very skilled engineers who also know how to be holistic critical thinkers. You have been on the public policy side, venture capital side, now academia as well. I think the more technology gets ingrained in our lives, more dilemmas that engineers will face because these are really transformative, powerful technologies. On the other side, there could be huge amount of unintended consequences. How, in your experience, we as a society, academia, and industry can strike a balance? It falls on the shoulders of many to make sure that we are thinking of the positives as well as the potential negatives. I really like to focus on the amazing positives that these technologies will have on not just the learning opportunities, right? This ability to tailor teaching to the needs of a wide variety of learners, but also the impact that it will have on many other applications and many other areas of need in society, such as cancer diagnostics and treatment, such as climate change and mitigating climate change. So those are the, the benefits and, and really the motivators for why we are continue to develop in the computer engineering space solutions that can be applied in those very important areas. At the same time, of course, it's extremely important that we're thinking about those unintended consequences. I think that if the engineers are trained to do that, if the institutions of higher education are trained to make sure that we are providing opportunities for our students to learn about those potential unintended consequences and how to ask the right questions, that companies also need to be aware of this, that perhaps policies need to be put in place from governments to be able to better anticipate potential unintended consequences and deal with that. I think it's a wide societal problem that we'll continue to tackle as we move forward and always be on the lookout for that weighing of the positives as well as the potential negatives. Yeah, the, the fact that they've intertwined engineering with liberal arts is a fascinating first foundational steps towards that. So people develop a very holistic thinking about approaching these problems and their implications on the world. Which brings me to the next point. And you touched on this before in terms of improving representation, equity, etc. The admission process for this program is much more holistic than traditional engineering programs. Can you explain how? and why there was such an emphasis on equity. You said earlier that we have to bring a lot more women in this workforce. Why changing and adjusting this admission process and how it will unlock and bring and attract a lot more talent to these programs? Yes, it was very important to us to be able to make sure that this program was accessible to a broad audience while still 
maintaining the rigor that we expect. We know there are a lot of talented, curious people in the world who want to start and study engineering. Maybe they want to be at a place like Dartmouth, maybe uh, another college in their area. And there are obstacles to them getting access to that kind of education. So we really wanted to be able to reach those people. So have a very flexible program so that we could reach, for example, working parents or people who have full-time jobs and really don't have time to take a full-time program and wish to do uh, enroll in part-time. And so we expect that the applicants for the online program, they're going to bring different educational backgrounds to the table, different life experiences to the program. And that's exactly what we want. Because we're structuring the online program to be as personalized as one can get through an online platform, we want those different experiences to come to the table, to come to the classroom, to share those experiences with others. We think that further helps develop this more human-centered and holistic engineer. Of course, all applicants will have to have some experience in STEM, but we realize that many people, maybe they majored in math, right? Maybe they majored in biology. You wouldn't think of those as necessarily lending themselves well to computer engineering. But what we're trying to do is for applicants who maybe demonstrate that their talent and their passion for a program like this, that maybe we would end up suggesting that they take certain courses first, maybe free open courses that are Coursera online courses. Maybe they've never done programming. They're going to need to know some programming to enter into this program. So maybe it's a C programming or a Linux specialization. And so we're really trying to be very responsive at the admissions level to make those suggestions so that we can help them build a bit of a skill set necessary to be able to enter into the program. Because again, that's really what the program is about, having these people of different backgrounds. And so we want the biology majors, we want the math majors, even maybe if you weren't a science major and you're really committed to doing a lot of pre-training, if you will, then that's great too. We want to see your application and we'll help guide you. We want you to be successful in the program. And so if we don't feel that you're qualified enough, we're going to let you know that. But again, we're going to let you know that with at the same time making some suggestions for what you might be able to do to be able to build up those qualifications. Fantastic. So you talk a little bit about the promise of online and how it allows you to personalize the experience uh, for many more students now. And with artificial intelligence, machine learning becoming so ingrained in our lives and work, do you foresee these technologies impacting our method of instruction and learning as well? Absolutely. And I think it's really only just the beginning. I think I mentioned it slightly before that we will be able to more and more use the tools available to us through a computing platform to really tailor the courses that we deliver to the needs of diverse set of learners. So you can imagine that some learners might be better at learning visually, and some learners, as we know, are better at learning through hands-on experiences. We will be able to provide an ability to cater some of the 
coursework to meet those diverse needs of learners. And so I think we'll see that really taking off more and more in these online programs, not just the one we're delivering, but but in all of them. Also, being able to use platforms as we have been through the pandemic and as they've improved even since, platforms to engage with wide variety of people from all across the globe. So be able to create a cohort of students from different backgrounds, from different places, logging on at different times some of the time to be able to learn about each other and meet each other and talk to each other, to be able to be peer supports for each other as well. Also using technology to provide real-time feedback and assessment to students. Sometimes I remember when you know I was in school, you'd turn in the exam and you'd turn in the homework, and it was days, if not longer, before you really got the feedback that perhaps you would have needed a little bit sooner to really help you with the next assignment. By being able to take advantage of more AI-integrated technologies to provide real-time feedback and assessment, I think that can only be of benefit to the students. And then on the professor side of things, right, providing professors the ability to really go beyond what some of them are used to. It's sort of standing at the blackboard or the whiteboard and writing out a lecture in real time. You know, that way of teaching doesn't work for most learners anymore. And so being able to take advantage of more technologies to develop sort of open-ended and creative lectures or lesson plans for students and giving them then more time to support students' unique needs. So all of these tools really, I think, are driving a more personalized education in very positive ways. You talked a little bit about industry-academia partnership and how that should be reflected in the program, some of those imperatives. Are there areas within this degree that reflects sort of vestiges and hues of that collaboration so that students are better prepared for the tech landscape? And I want to stretch that argument a little bit and ask, do you envision a world where educational content produced by companies, leading companies, are also going to get integrated into degree programs? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, to tackle your first question, which around the sort of public-private partnership idea. So it is imperative that we go to industry and ask industry for feedback on what skills are they looking for in an online program, particularly a Master of Engineering program. I may say something slightly different for an undergraduate program where I think building a a foundation of learning, skill of learning how to learn, being a lifelong learner is more important. At the master's level, I would say that having a more skills-based approach is okay. So it's something that we've been doing is going to industry and getting some good feedback from industry with respect to what are some of those skills. And that's where that partnership with industry is really critical. So it's absolutely something we'll continue to do because as you know, the machine learning that they're learning about in this program today will be different from the machine learning that they will be needing to know in even three years from now. So you have to keep well updated with respect to the actual content that you're delivering to the students in a program like this. And then your question, too, around 
do I think companies will be providing educational content? I think that there's value in that, absolutely. What I don't see happening, though, is companies, perhaps with a few exceptions, having expert teachers. They're always going to have to partner with universities, right, with professors, with educational experts who are really understanding the research out there on how to best teach, how to best teach in different learning environments, how to best teach to diverse populations. And so I think them doing it in isolation, I don't see as being something that would be incredibly popular or successful without that partnership with the, the folks who are really considered the experts in educational delivery. Got it. So it's, it's a lot about bringing that domain and industry expertise, but bounded and packaged within the pedagogical practices of an institution. Sure. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. As an engineer, you're a career engineer. There's your background. And so what about AI excites you the most? I think really, I understand why AI sounds scary to a lot of people. But I think really, I would point to the incredible impact that AI is going to have on improving society. As I mentioned before, human-centered engineers, if they're trained in the context of the skills that one needs to know for AI, as well as how to be critical thinkers about the potential impacts of whatever it is that they're creating, I get very excited about things like the impact on healthcare. So remote lung or heart monitoring or AI-assisted cancer screening, AI-assisted vaccine or immunotherapies, high-throughput drug screening, all of these areas in healthcare are being assisted by AI. So think about the last time you went to your doctor, you had an ache or a pain or you weren't feeling that well, right? The doctor's gonna ask you a series of questions and then the doctor's sort of the detective at that point and they're diagnosing and I'm sure either individuals or family members that you know have said, oh, I was misdiagnosed, right? Or it took a long time to come to diagnosis or the treatment didn't quite work and so we had to try a different one. That artificial intelligence will actually be better than humans at diagnosing and treating diseases and ailments. And so isn't that a huge positive uh, that we're looking forward to? There are many others. I work in the climate space and the energy space around looking at large sets of data and understanding what's impacting climate change and understanding what technologies might be better managed and controlled to minimize energy consumption in the energy efficiency space, that AI will continue to play a large role in that. And isn't that a positive thing? While we need to think about those potential negatives, I'm really excited about the real amazing impact that AI will have on improving society. Thank you so much for spending this time with us, uh, Alexis. To close out the conversation, can you share some advice with listeners who are considering a career in engineering? Sure. Well, I always say 
to those considering engineering, and of course, it depends what stage they are in their lives. For younger people, engineering is an incredible foundation, even if you're not sure you want to be an engineer. Studying engineering, if you have any opportunities at the high school level to take an engineering class, I really encourage, even if you're not quite sure it's right for you to take it, um, certainly majoring in engineering at an undergraduate level or even associate's degree level, such an incredible foundation on which to build no matter what career you go into. Many of our engineering majors here at Dartmouth end up going into business or into medicine or into law, and they really see that foundation in engineering not only help them in their careers in various ways, but help them be a better global citizen. So always encourage that. And even if you didn't study engineering as an undergrad, but are looking for a graduate level, a master's level opportunity, really finding a, the area to specialize in that you're passionate about, that's really what a master's degree is all about, to explore what opportunities are available to you. And I would suggest that if you're looking at that level, to do so with an eye toward how much is the program really sort of just doing problem sets and calculating things versus how much real world exposure am I going to get? How much hands-on or project-based learning is there in the educational experience? And hopefully that speaks to you and is a driver for you to explore those opportunities even further. That was really informative. I deeply appreciate Dr. Bramson for sharing your knowledge and insights with us today. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you. So nice to be here with you. This life-changing degree, coupled with new skills and robust professional network, can unlock doors for countless learners pursuing a career in engineering, enabling them to reshape our technological future, but without appending their lives or careers. This program is available now on Coursera.org. And for access to the broader Coursera catalog of over 6,000 courses from top universities and companies, we are offering a subscription to Coursera Plus for just $1. Click the link in the episode description for more details. If you enjoyed this episode of the Coursera podcast, please rate, review, and share. Until next time, I'm Arunav Sena. Thank you for tuning in.